I'm here with Joel Eisen and Shelley Welton. Uh, Joel is professor of law at the University of Richmond School of Law, and Shelley is assist assistant professor of law at the University of South Carolina School of Law. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So uh, we want to talk today about um, distributed energy resources and some of the distributive issues associated with the policies that we uh, use to try and encourage those resources. And as a starting point, let's, um, let's acknowledge that um, these policies are designed to promote development of renewable energy resources in part because uh, we have a climate emergency. We need to get more clean energy into the mix. Uh, and when we think about the distributive implications of all that, part of the reason we want to do that is because climate change is going to adversely affect poor people disproportionately. Uh, and so to, to the extent that we can displace uh, fossil fuel resources, we are probably, uh, probably helping those disproportionately affected people. Uh, and that's a, you know, a worthy policy goal that everyone sort of agrees upon. Uh, but there are also distributive impacts associated with some of the policies that we are thinking about when we think about um, promoting distributed renewables like rooftop solar uh, and, and things like that. Recently, my students and I delved into a bunch of studies that, uh, that try to place a value on rooftop solar, in part because uh, states and consultants are uh, re-examining policies that we all know as net metering, whereby owners of rooftop solar are compensated for the excess generation that they send back to the grid at the retail rate. And some people think of that as a regressive policy, one that tends to shift costs from the adopters of rooftop solar who tend to be relatively well off, generally speaking, compared to the rest of the customer mix, to, to the less well off remainder on the system. And so these studies all try to place a value on rooftop solar. And I guess um, uh, I wanted to talk to you all as, as uh, authors of a leading article that's not yet out but will be out next year or this year, later this year in Harvard Environmental Law Review about distributed generation and some of these issues. So um, first of all, let me just ask a blunt question to start. Do, you, do either of you think of uh, net metering as basically a regressive policy economically? I would and you don't have to answer yes or no. You can answer. I mean, I will, I will answer it depends, like a good lawyer. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think the thing about net metering is that it got adopted largely because it's a simple policy, and so it's appealing to homeowners because it makes a lot of sense to them intuitively to run their meter backwards. And when you're talking about really low levels of rooftop solar penetration, there, there might be a minuscule transfer in one direction or the other, if you look at the overall grid, either from those who put solar on their roof uh, back towards those who don't, or maybe in the other direction, right? The, the studies go both ways in terms of, is a solar panel a net benefit to the grid, or is it a net suck from the grid under some current pricing structure? Um, I don't worry a lot about net metering in states where there's very low solar PV penetration, right? Like the studies suggest that it is just not a huge component of retail rates. Like 
things like how much natural gas you have on the system and fluctuation of natural gas prices or capital expenditures way more drive retail rates than a small amount of rooftop PV. So in states that are really early adopters that are trying to get their solar off the ground, I don't think that metering is much of a progressive policy, and I think it might be quite progressive for all the reasons that you suggested in that you've got to get these industries jump-started in order to make this energy transition that all of us desperately need, but particularly the people that are going to be worst impacted. Um, as you get to higher penetrations of PV, rooftop PV, that cost shift starts to get a lot more dramatic. So in a place like Hawaii that has over 10% penetration, I think there are real concerns that you're going to start to see bigger cost shifts because solar is sort of maxing out some of its ability to help the grid. Um, and at the same time, you're getting a lot less coverage of all of the costs of the grid if you're not doing some sort of rate design that better calibrates fixed costs and energy costs, the variable cost part of retail rates. Um, let me add a bit to that. I, I, in order to understand the studies that your students are looking at, it helps to build upon the foundation that, that Shelley has just laid down with net metering as a bit of a blunt instrument. It really doesn't, it doesn't attempt to capture any sense of the costs and benefits to the, to the grid of the distributed energy, but rather, as, as Shelley said, is an easy way to let the homeowner know that if he or she goes solar, that there will be some, some benefit there. And as states began to see higher levels of penetration, they engaged in what I might think of as the first generation of attempts to retrench net metering. States had caps on overall program size, they had caps on individual system size, and again, none of that was aiming to capture a sense of the costs and benefits of net metering. And so now that 38 states in D.C. have net metering, a number of states have started to look at higher penetration of rooftop solar and have started to do these studies trying to put a more accurate value on the cost and benefits of, of rooftop PV. One of the concerns that we had in the article is that a lot of these studies are driven by the utilities who have a vested interest in making this argument about cross-subsidization. And so we think it's extremely important to understand the exact nature of the subsidies and whether, in fact, they are happening at higher levels of penetration. Yeah, and as, as you alluded to, Shelley, when we looked at the studies, we found all sorts of sort of wildly divergent estimates of the various components of the benefits to the rest of the system of adopting rooftop solar. And, and sort of the two main the two main components that sort of on which we saw this difference were the environmental benefits of adopting rooftop solar. So these are usually displacement of fossil fuel generation, especially at the peak, which often in most places is gas. And then the other were sort of avoided investments in wires infrastructure. Um, you don't obviously you don't have to build transmission if, uh, out to some other unit if you're if you don't if you deflect or defer rather some demand because you have rooftop solar. And so uh, one of the things that struck us, and I had never looked at these before either, and so um, uh, one of the things that struck me as well was uh, that the environmental benefit estimates 
many of them came in sort of around the same numbers that you see in the economics literature, say three, three and a half cents per kilowatt hour, which is not insignificant, right? It's, in, here in Texas, it's 30, 35% of the price. Um, and, and, but some of them were much higher than that. You know, they were sometimes, they would multiply the, the rate that people pay by two or three times if they were actually included in, in rates. And so um, th these were the studies that tended to conclude that retail rates, if anything, underestimated the benefits to, um, to, to, um, to the rest of the grid. And so, you know, that, that difference re was really striking and, um, and sort of led, led me to sort of start to think about, well, to whom do these benefits flow? Right, I mean, they flip, they're, they're estimating benefits to the world, essentially, but they're shifting costs to a much smaller subset of people, which are the rest of the people on the grid. Um, so so my, I guess my question is, what do you make of that, of that issue of sort of the rest of the people on the grid essentially compensating rooftop solar owners for the benefit to the world of their adoption of rooftop solar? I think it is a potential concern. I will say that. Um, I mean, on the one hand, this is sort of the nature of climate policy, period, right? Like, to the extent that we don't have a global government, anybody that decides to do anything on climate change is providing some benefit to the rest of the world that accrues beyond whoever is paying for it. Even at a federal level, that would be true. Um, so the question then, I think, is how do you guard against this being a seriously regressive policy where you're basically asking some group of residents in a locality or a state that don't put PV on to be particularly generous towards the rest of the world. Um, and that, I think, again, like it depends on how much PV you have in your system and how big a cost shift that is as to whether or not that's something that the state, the city, feels is politically, morally acceptable. I mean, to a certain extent, I'm quite concerned with the process that we use to adopt these value of solar tariffs. Um, if you have a process that feels democratic and reflective of community values, and I will note that low-income and minority residents tend to support climate change policies more than rich people. Right? So there's an interesting democratic element at work here where I don't want to prejudge and say that it would be you know, wrong for a place to decide to put a high environmental value on distributed generation for all of the reasons that you might care about promoting distributed generation, right? Like, the other thing I want to note is I think there's an important component to sort of community building, uh, community character, like the sense that a community is doing something to help solve this problem that can also be quite powerful. So I think there are reasons that you could justify uh, having environmental values that reflect the real costs that all of us impose on the world with our decisions. Um, at the same time, if the issue is not well vetted of who these costs fall on and who does not pay them, in a community setting when you're deciding to adopt it, I'm much more troubled by the policy because it may just be sort of, um, you know, minoritarian politics at work based on who gets in the room on these very technocratic energy decisions. Uh. I have to say, I, I, let me add to that a bit. I, I'm, I'm broadly in agreement with everything everything Shelley has said here, and I want to add that I think some of the disparity that you see in estimating environmental benefits in in various states is not due to the fact that we're trying to estimate climate benefits to the entire world, but we're instead trying to estimate climate benefits to the ratepayers of an entire state, and. 
there, it, it, it seems to depend to me largely on the type of measure that's chosen. I'm, I'm broadly familiar with some of the studies, and I know that we're talking about different methodologies that have been, been used in different states. But it, it seems to me to be troubling in one sense that, that there's such great disparity, but comforting in another that measures like social cost of carbon are being used to, to price the environmental benefits. One of the reasons that we one of the reasons that we chose to talk about net metering in in the article is precisely what what Shelley just mentioned about the, its its procedural dimension dimension and PUC proceedings being exceedingly technocratic, very difficult for interveners to to, to um, take part in. It can be very difficult for someone who is representing a lower-income community to understand this split of net metering and the simple idea of crediting at a retail rate into energy, capacity, transmission, distribution components, and, and environment, environmental benefits, and have all of the expertise developed to somehow understand all this and participate actively and meaningfully in a, in a proceeding. I think that's something we found we found very troubling. Almost as troubling for me is the fact that the the resulting estimates in the process seem to diverge from one another. I think one of the the dynamics that you see at work as you get higher penetration of PUV and more of these types of concerns and this movement towards the highest solar is an effort to bring more people into being able to participate in solar. And so I think you see a lot of places that are moving towards value of solar also trying to be very thoughtful about how you bring more people into the fold, right? So programs like community solar or uh, multifamily building solar. And I think those kinds of targeted efforts, they don't solve this problem, but I think they at least help distribute the benefits of solar more broadly. And that's one of the things that Joel and I were thinking about in our piece is how you can do that. Can you, can you feel some sympathy to the utility scale solar developer who's getting three cents a kilowatt hour in these new contracts or four cents a kilowatt hour in these new contracts and seeing rooftop solar owners getting, you know, 10 to 20 cents a kilowatt hour for the power they put on the grid? One of the things I think about in answering that question is I want to go back to something Shelley said earlier about the values of having distributed energy resources that aren't necessarily captured in value of solar estimation today. When we talk about rooftop solar, we're talking about empowering individual homeowners, particularly if we use a community solar model, or the, something like a, a multifamily building or a community solar garden or uh, something of that sort. We're talking about empowering people in a very democratic, small d way from the ground up to become participants in their own energy future. And that's something to me that isn't necessarily always captured in this, in this process and certainly not something that would be part of a utility-scale solar project. A lot of what I'm doing now is looking at the individual community solar projects that are, that are taking place across the nation and trying to discern whether they are being led by utilities or by 
coalitions of individuals on, on the ground, building it up from the ground up. And that sort of democratic participation value is extremely important, I think, in this energy transition. It's one of the reasons that we've teamed up to write about energy justice. Yeah, I mean, I would just add, of course I have sympathy for utility-scale renewable developers that are competing in a marketplace that does not price carbon, right? Like, it would be better if we just priced carbon. I think everybody, I mean, not everybody, but everybody that's a part of these debates, I think, would agree that a rational carbon price would really help us out here. But absent a rational carbon price, I would rather somebody be pricing this in than nobody be pricing this in. And states seem to be the place that we can get a little bit of traction on this right now. Um, and so here we are in our irrational world. <laughs> so uh, let's, uh, let me ask one last question um, that sort of flows from what I think you've been saying, which is, um, you know, if we project forward to a world where we have higher levels of adoption of both utility scale and distributed renewables, uh, you can imagine in that world the rooftop solar, I should say, is no longer displacing fossil fuels, right? It's competing directly with other renewables. Um, and so the environmental component of that, of that value sort of goes away, or some of the environmental component of that value goes away, but the participatory and other elements that Joel just outlined and you talked about earlier, Shelley, are still there. Um, and so I guess the question is, in that future world, do we become less comfortable with this price differential, or how, how, do, we, how do we compare the two in that situation? Um, the latest estimates make rooftop solar about four or five times more expensive than utility-scale solar. Uh, how do we think about the, the allocation of the market between those two types of, of renewable generation in a, play, in a future where we hopefully get to a much higher level of penetration of renewables? Yeah, I mean, I hope we're in that world where we get to have this conversation. I think that'd be a great place to be. And I think, I mean, I think fundamentally this is going to have to be a dynamic pricing process where the value of DER, distributed energy, changes based on what the system looks like. And if we're in that system, it's just not going to have the same level of value. Um, I think it might have some interesting new values in that system, right? Like in a system where we're overwhelmed by utility-scale renewables, not having to cite more utility-scale renewables might be something that people are willing to pay some more money for. Um, and rooftop is beautiful for avoiding citing controversies. You're, like, you're begging for it on your property. Um, so I think there might be new kinds of values that emerge, but it's just a more expensive option. Um, and I think particularly as we scale up the ambition of the transition, we're going to have to be mindful of costs. And so we're going to want to think about how to price it appropriately to the moment that we're in. But you know, unfortunately, we're not in that moment yet. I, want, I wanted to just add, and this is a little bit of shameless self-promotion as, as well, that a year ago, I co-authored an article that was called Free Trade and Electric Power, and I'll be happy to link to that, to that for your readers. And the idea there is that eventually rooftop solar and other distributed energy resources might be actually able to participate in distribution-level markets, similar to the markets that the utility-scale solar particip participate in now at the wholesale level. And once we get to that point, and that could be 10, 20, or 30 years away, but states like New York are contemplating this, 
once we get to that point where we have this revolutionary future where electricity is something of a commodity that can be bought or sold by the rooftop solar owner at his or her pleasure to whomever she sees fit, then we're in a, in, a, in a world very much like what Shelley just described, where the price is set by market forces, and it would be a very different sort of pricing structure than the administrative regulatory structure that we find ourselves in right now. But for the moment, we find ourselves muddling through with this administrative regulatory structure at state level and at federal level that produces disparate results in the near term, but will probably coalesce around some sort of pricing equilibrium in the long term. Or at least we hope. Great. Thanks, both of you, for sitting down to talk. Thank you. Thank you.